Welcome to the Shape of a Star podcast, where everyone has a story. We just need to shape it so that we're the star or something like that. So as we all know, people that have come onto this podcast are people I just randomly met throughout life, whether it was just like randomly DMing them online, whether it was just people I went to college with or went to high school with. But tonight or today or whenever you're listening to this, this person tonight, he is super cool. And I met him because everyone knows I do marching band. I do guard. And I was listening to like cool instrumentals on, I forgot where, I guess it was YouTube was where I first heard it. Because who doesn't find everything through YouTube suggestions these days? But I fell in love with his music. Was like, oh my God, this would be a great winter show. Realized it's way too hard to be a winter show for the level I teach at. So I checked out the rest of his catalog. Bought a couple albums. Now I'm on Spotify, so I don't have to buy albums anymore. Although I do miss you, Google Play. Google Play Music, we all miss you. But that's a different story. Not sponsored by them. So tonight, we are talking to one of the most collaborative people that I actually have ever had to work with in a professional sense. Phil Lober or Lobber. Hello, Phil. It's Lober, yeah. Phil Lober. Okay, cool. (laughs) I was thinking of it. I was like, oh, wait, I never asked you. I always said Lober. Yeah, perfect. You got it right. Cool. But welcome to the podcast. It's a cool, cool podcast. Thanks. And how would you describe you to the world? Because I know I pitched how I know you, but I'd like to let people explain who they are to the listeners. Yeah, I'm I'm still figuring it out. Um, I guess I'm pretty tall. Yeah, pretty much. I guess I'm I'm just pretty reserved as a person. Um, but then when I'm comfortable, I'm just very extroverted. So I guess uh, I can be many things. I feel like the more I know myself, the less I have to say about it. I think that's the issue too. When people ask me the question, it's like yeah. the more you know about yourself, it's like, eh, where do I start? Yeah, exactly. That just yeah, just that that happened to me. All that shit. Also, it's like, I am who I am. You just observe for a few minutes. Right, yeah. Yeah. But, so, like I told the world, like, literally like a minute ago, I met you because you are a composer, musician. How would you describe yourself professionally? Professionally? Okay, well, that's a different matter. Um, I would say that I just like to write music. I really, really like to write music. I mean, if someone has a job for me, whether it's low paying or high paying, I know that I'm going to want to do that. I know I'm going to enjoy the process of doing it. Um, And so usually uh, if somebody wants to make changes on something, I'm down to do that. I'm down to really do anything as long as we make a good project together. Um, So usually when working with me, I would say I'm pretty like, I don't, use a lot of words i just say okay and i I try to get the job done um but if you're friends with me it's a total opposite manner so yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) so actually here's a good question that i didn't think of beforehand how would you describe the genre of music you write yeah um i actually i saw i saw that and i thought that that was an interesting question i was trying to figure out how would i answer that and um you know i would try to say that I have tendencies to certain instrumentation, like the sort of electronic, the sounds of the synths themselves, some certain chord changes. 
Mm-hmm. But um, as far as the genre in, in itself, I think I just I try to use emotive elements from different genres and just make a song out of that. Because for me, each song is a different experience that I've had. Um, it's it's not like oh I'm gonna make an R and B track today. Yeah. Oh, that's this beat is totally an R and B beat. It's it's more like I'm going to oh this thing has elements from R and B. This thing has elements from from this other genre, maybe, who knows? I'm just trying to make something that is emotive for me. So it's just my weird uh, dream experience, just writing music and reacting to it, pretty much. I mean, I would call your music very dreamlike and emotive. I think emotive is actually one of the best words for it because I've known your music for, I guess, what, how many years now? Like, what, eight? Yeah. And I think I reached out to you, what, six, seven and a half years ago? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no. You, you've been. Um, it, it was really fun uh, seeing my work and your guard performance. It was super cool, um, and it's a pleasure. Yeah. Again, it's, thank you for letting us use it. Of course, man. Well, I used to be in marching band, like I said, and and, um, and I totally feel for the color guard and everything. Um, That's actually but, a great segue too, because how did you get into music? Basically, um, let me think about that for a second, because it was I was super young. I remember being about five years old and really being impressed by video game music, um, like from Donkey Kong Country, from Game and Watch, um, certain songs in there. And I'd be like, oh, this is, a, this is such an emotive song. And I remember going to the main menus of certain video games just to hear the music. Um, and I started to learn piano when I was about six years old. And um, Okay, so this is before Dearly Beloved. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because you and um, I are basically the same age. So I'm like, oh, wait, Kingdom Hearts wasn't out when we were six. That's right. Oh, dope. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's some great music. But no, I was just listening to classic, um, just random, random Game Boy games. Um, I remember Donkey Kong Country, especially liked a lot. Donkey Kong Land, actually, it was called for Game Boy Color. Yeah. And, um, and I, I started playing piano. I started to learn more piano. But I was a very, very stubborn student. I didn't like to play uh, work that was already written because I thought like what's the point like I'm just I, I was I was such a weird kid man I was like um what how am I contributing to society if I'm not if I'm doing something that's already been done before what what's the point um and you know later I learned that you shouldn't always think like that but at the time I was super super stubborn and so the piano teachers even though I, I learned everything they taught me I learned all the scales and how to finger them and everything um what ended up happening was uh, they were like, you're just not playing the music we want you to play. And I ended up just learning what they taught me to play my own music. And um, and so I'm really grateful. Even though I, I suffered a lot during those lessons, I'm, I'm super grateful they happened. Um, then later on after that, um, I expressed a lot of interest in, in film composing. And um, I ended up with a very, you know, I had this very, very cheap computer. And uh, I made a couple of things on it and um then i got started up with cubase and some other digital audio workstations and notation software such as sibelius um and i began to write music for lego it it was a lego bionicle forum called bz power and i was i was obsessed with bionicle man it was my childhood obsession oh Um, okay yeah and and uh, i started to write some for, for these games, I was 13. These kids were like 10 making these games. 
Um, and so what I would do is I would just get a string staccato patch and play something really dramatic and then speed it up to 300 BPM like a maniac. And uh, for some reason, people really like that. <laughs> they really like that in the, um, in, in the game. It was like some Super Smash Brothers Bionicle parody thing. Yeah, and that's it was the time of Nightcore. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, maybe that's that's a good point, actually. Maybe it was just super high BPM was in. I don't yep. know. But um, yeah, so then after that, I, I got offered to be the sort of... It's sort of a semi-legitimate development of movies when I was around 15 and everyone else was basically 15 to 12 or 17, who knows? Um, making these Lego Bionicle movies. It was like a fan project. Oh my God, there were like 12 movies in line. They were all CGI. Uh, quite impressive, actually, the results. Um, obviously didn't go through, but but pretty good for a bunch of teenagers in animation software. And um, and so I was the lead of the music department on that when I was about 15. Um, I met some really cool composers, including Alex Palm, who's a fantastic chiptune artist. Um, and uh, had had some very, 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 very awesome experiences writing just different concepts, conceptual tracks uh, and themes for that uh, for the films that would be in development. And then later, other composers in the in the music department would score it. So I was sort of the, I don't know, like the the theme developer. Um, so yeah, and then then later after that, I got offered in my high school a sort of an orchestration gig, orchestrating for, it was called uh, Night and Day. And it was from, oh man, I think it was from Ev Everything Goes. And um, yeah, I'm not sure the, the, what the musical's name was. Uh, so like, da 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 da, anything goes. Yeah, I think that might be it. Yeah. Okay, it's the one Sutton Foster was in everyone. <laughs> No, it's yeah. Uh, that was something I had to actually fake sick to get out of school so I could write music for the school. Uh, and I think at that point I realized that my priorities were very, very different. Like I, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want to get good grades. I just wanted to make music and help other people with their projects, basically, and um, and make something real happen. You know, not just not just uh, textbook shit. So. Um, so, you know, that's, that was my school life. It was pretty intense as far as, as far as music classes and certain other classes getting A pluses in and other classes uh, just getting Fs in. So I just didn't care. I just wanted to write music um, and also study some other stuff, but mainly just, just write music and write and write and get deeper into that world and meet other people who are interested in music and um and yeah, and then so so later I, uh, after meeting a lot of people and making friends, um, a friend of mine, Jasper Blunk, who owns Performance Samples, uh, great, great company, man. Make insane, insanely good products. Oceania is a great, great choir. Um, so he, he convinced me to get into trailer music. And so I went around and around and... Um, asking people hey can you accept my tracks i have like three tracks here and they're like no 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 or if they did respond it would be like oh these aren't good enough but maybe we can put them into this other catalog that no one cares about and 
I was like, okay, well, that, that sucks. So I kept on doing it and doing it. And um, I just didn't give up. I just, I was just dead set on the trailer thing. It was like, I just knew I was going to get it. And, um, and eventually I got picked up by really slow motion um, with August and rain. And wait, um, okay. So really slow motion. The people who did the final fantasy 15 trailer. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I got started with them when I was around like, Oh man, it might've been like 19 or 20. Uh, I, I started to, uh, mingle on their side and, um, I finally got a couple tracks into their, into one of their albums. And then I placed one day in a little Avengers commercial and I was super happy. I was like, Oh my God, that music I made some kids room, you know, it was just like me in some room. Wait, and, um, like the Avengers, like Joss Whedon, 2012. Right. Yeah. And so it got into a little commercial and, oh, was, oh man, this is crazy. And, um, and so I took the money that I made from that and I went to go uh, visit other composers in Europe. And I just learned, man, I learned so much, not even about music, but just about life and, um, and people. Um, because, and that's another thing that we can get into later is just how, how much this, this practice sucks your social life. But um, yeah, <laughs> but so up, up until then, I uh, just had a career with Ghost Rider, uh, which I feel, I, I think I've said this on other interviews before, but they feel like a small family to me. And um, it's, it's, it's super nice to write with them because they just tell you immediately what's wrong with the track and what's right with it and what you can do. They're very, very quick and just straight to the point, which I love because I, I can take criticism. That's totally fine. And um, so, so I've been working with them, and uh, we scored, we scored a number of trailers. Uh, we got a bunch of placements. Um, one of them for Aquaman, one of them for uh, the Christopher Robin movie, one of them for Venom. Um, oh, yeah. And so, I had a fantastic little run with them, and I hope I'm hoping to continue that. But I'm super grateful for that time, man. That was probably one of the best times of my life, and. Um, yeah so yeah that's up until then that's been or up until now uh that's pretty much been it i mean you also scored you scored a netflix movie didn't you that's right i did yeah it's funny <laughs> completely forgot about that um yeah so so i i was on i was offered a job writing for a movie about this redhead woman who loses her sight and uh who's a former former musician and um, I can't say the rest because I don't want to spoil it. But I was like, wow, that's strange because I'm a, a red haired guy who had a horrible, you know, eye surgery outcome. And um, it really affected my music. And um, and I was like, that's really weird. So I was like, OK, I'll do this. And um, I mean, not only for that, but <laughs> also because it was a really interesting story. And the director was was um, I think he's a really clever person. It's Cooper Carl. Um, yeah, but. So I was basically writing this score on a laptop entirely, and that was my first laptop-based score. Um, but I was able to bring that mobile setup to the director's house instead of vice versa, which is traditional in Hollywood. So I could basically go to his house. He would have his cup of coffee, uh, wake up, or whatever. Well, not in that order, but yeah. And um, <laughs> I, would, I would come over. And he could just start working. We would start working together. And it would be collaborative. He doesn't have to deal with LA traffic. Um, 
and I don't need huge giant speakers to work on a film. Those are just to kind of show off, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's just been like that ever since, um, as far as working on mobile rigs, super, super love that. And later the film went to Netflix and it was on TV in Latin America, I believe. So, um, so yeah, I, I was super, very, very grateful, um, to, to have that offer because even though it, it was very meticulous, like I would be composing, um, some melody like dun, 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 and the director would be like no 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 we have to go dun, 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 dun. like one note change like, okay so i changed every little note everything um was all according to uh well at least every revision was all according to his vision and um and so so it was meticulous at first but in the end it actually became out pretty good i mean this i thought it wouldn't work <laughs> so in some parts like are you sure you want to do this but then when you see the final product, you're like, okay, that actually makes sense. Um, so, yeah. So that actually is a good like industry question that it's bringing up to me. So obviously for a film that isn't like, I wouldn't call this like a big major studio film that you worked on, right? Mm. No, I mean, it's, it's like Mar Vista, which deals with a lot of Lifetime movies. So it's that kind of category. Oh, I love Lifetime movies. But, okay. Yeah, they're, they're addicting. They are. I love Hallmark movies too but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> but okay. So when you're working, usually there's like a music director on like big, big movies and these types of movies, I'm assuming it's just the director. And you actually answered my question in a way too, because I was like, so who do you collaborate with? Is it the, since there's no music director, I guess you were just collaborating directly with the director while he's sure. drinking coffee and well, stuff. It is. So it, it's not down to the amateur level where you're, just working with a director who's making the film. Actually, those go very easily, I've found, is that when the director has all the budget, when they can afford their own, um, you know, to, to just hire their own team and they don't have any producers behind them and it's just a sort of independent production, um, the process is quite smooth. Um, but, and I can't talk about it too much, but I will say that having two different production teams on one film uh, can be a little bit fragile. And um, I wouldn't recommend it, especially because the director at the end of the day has to suffer from the arguments of all these producers at once. And so the, the director gets paranoid of what to do. And so the director tries to create with the composer a musical score that is exactly online with what the producers may or may not want um instead of just having free flow creativity um so that it kind of hurts a lot of people so basically what i'm saying is just have a good production team that doesn't disagree all the time <laughs> i'm yeah. gonna say this an easier way for you yeah please all artists are really sensitive and everyone gets yeah. in their feelings so kind of find well, people that you can work with well <laughs> it's it's kind of like not even not even the feelings thing it's it's also more like i don't want to get fired or i don't want people not to trust me so i'm gonna make the movie that the producers want and yeah then after that after they like it and i'm more established then i can start to direct more other films um i think that's the general line of thought in most directors but um but then when it comes down to the composer the composer is just trying basically just trying to help the director get his voice um in the film through music and trying to impress the producers in order to help the director be more trusted with the producers. And I think that was kind of 
that's kind of been my effort a few times in my career on, a, on some certain movies. For sure. huh. Well, that's super interesting and like an interesting take because I think people forget directors don't always have the final say. It is the producers that hold most of the power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the director are the what is it? The the emperor, but the producers are like the shogun. I mean, they they really make everything happen. And oh, that's a good analogy. Yeah, and so it's it's a very and I think it kind of I was like the more people involved, the the more you really got to have the same page going on, or things will get out of hand really fast. Um, it's it's that's something I actually am still learning about. It's sort of the balance of how many people can be in a production team, um, because a lot of great movies are just made with one guy and a camera. So. If you're trying to capitalize on it and you're trying to put a conveyor belt system to it, like certain studios do, um, I won't mention their names, but it's it's sort of, I just don't understand how so, many, how so much disagreements can happen in a studio that pushes out films on a regular basis. So I, what I assume is that the producers end up getting their say in the end. Um, and in a lot of times may affect the film. You know, it may really, really, it could make it, make a great film but also it can really ruin a film um and i'm really fortunate that in sightless's case that wasn't that didn't happen it actually we made a solid film but um but there were certain choices you know there were certain choices that i kind of liked as oh could we do that no all right yeah and that's the wonderful thing about music too everything can be subjective and i don't know there's just like a flavor yeah. out there for everyone yeah yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's interesting. I do wonder about that. If if there's an objectivity to music in in some sort of emotional sense, I mean, there are just some. There's just some music that sounds less cliche than others, and and cliche by definition is when you've overheard it too much. And yep. if enough, if enough of a enough music is overheard by a culture too much, then it's objectively or at least collectively going to be cheesy. And and uh, I guess my effort was to try to avoid that. Um, so yeah, I tried to make a score that was cheesy and not cheesy at the same time, kind of work together uh, to make a fun, scary, cheesy horror experience, but also at the same time to make a not cheesy, interesting thriller experience. And um, so yeah. So because you've worked on various genres now, so you've done like the superhero stint, you've done like horror genre, what do you think is like harder to bring forth a vision for? I'm sorry, it cut out. Could you ask that again? Oh, sorry. Um, so you've worked on like superhero stuff. You've worked on like horror thriller stuff. Like what would you say is like the harder genre to compose and collaborate and just create for? Oh man. You know, I would say horror. I think that takes a particular mind to create things like that. Um, I mean, you have the hereditary score, which is at some points is just a major chord that goes up and down an arpeggiated scale. And you're like, oh my God, this is horrifying, but it's just a major scale. Um, so I think horror is a lot of minimal elements that support the imagery of the movie. Um, the imagery being not just the visuals, but the, the startles, the feeling reacting to the to the scares in the film or the creepiness yeah. in the film that makes um, sense the other challenge with horror is that 
the most terrifying horror film scenes are quiet. I don't know if you've noticed, but every time I've been like scared by a movie, it's been in a quiet scene. Um, so it, it's it's and then the music like, kicks in after the scare, right? A little bit or before or something like that, because the music should be in horror. I think the music should be there to it has to be very delicate because you have to provide a creepy atmosphere. Um, but then in some moments of silence, it could even make it more scary and more creepy. So it's, it's, it's all about the context of the film and, and how it's going. But with things like Superman, things like, I don't know, just any sort of superhero Marvel movie, you already hear in your head what it's going to sound like. Like you already know. And I've, I've worked with that kind of music so often. That's so fun to make. Um, but yeah, for sure, horror is way more challenging, way more. But I think after Sightless, um, I've learned so much, and I'm pretty confident that I can do a horror film again, for sure. Oh, I have no doubt <laughs> that you could do that. Hopefully. Yeah. So another question, I guess, is that, so you work as a freelance music person these days. Does that mean like people that work like the way you do, do you guys get agents or are you guys just kind of just like who, you know, hustling through? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because with trailer music, you have these publishers. Um, so like ghostwriter for me, Brian, Wen, who works there, um, he will, for me, he'll take my tracks and try to pitch them to different editors, different supervisors and different trailer houses. So in that way, in that moment, the publisher acts as your agent. That makes yeah, um, right. And that's actually why people go to publishers. You know, it's a fifty percent split, but it's worth it. I mean, you have half your income taken, but it's completely worth it because these without it, you would never get the gig. And um, and these yeah, so basically they act like agents. And um, aside from that, you're pretty much on your own. Um, I remember a lot of the time posting on Facebook groups and just doing a lot of short films for free. And um, that was when I was around 16. So I, I didn't, I didn't understand them. I didn't I need money. <laughs> but um, later I realized that you shouldn't be doing that. Shouldn't be doing free work. Um, but at the same time, you can totally find film gigs um, pretty much anywhere. However, when it comes to trailer music, I feel like you need uh, a certain way in. So yeah, I think um, as far as agencies go, you—it's tricky. I never really needed an, a, an official agency, and from what I've heard, they—if you're not a well-known composer—they tend to kind of push you down, uh, not really respond to you too much. So you have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing to get them to sort of notice. Um, because you know you can join certain agencies. Oh, I totally forgot the name of the agency that. Um, John Williams is with Brian Tyler's with. Oh man, it was like a name agency. Um, oh, I'm so embarrassed I forgot that. Well, anyway, um, so th places like that, when you get into that kind of agency, you need to really push yourself, push yourself through. Um, even though it's a fantastic agency, fantastic. Um, so I would say agencies are very helpful, but they're not the end all be all solution. Um, because in another way the way that you found my music was through YouTube. Yep. I had promotion channels sort of uploading my music and in a way promoting it. And, um, and so that was sort of like a mini agent in a way. And, um, and my music got exposed and 
and people mainly know my music because of YouTube. I never needed any agent for that. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's a it's a multifaceted answer to the question. Hey, factors in life. It's what we're here for. I love hearing yeah. about all the intricacies. Like, I didn't even know you did like half those trailers. I thought Aquaman was your first trailer. Oh no, yeah, no, I've had a I've had a a, a decent run. It's funny because I'm not like the best. I'm not like getting all the trailers all the time. Um, because there's some guys out there that are working like night and day. And I used to be like that. Um, but now it's 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 pretty much I, I just want to get a quality trailer. You know, more than more than quantity. I want to work for um like a really, really nice trailer, maybe live off of that for a bit and um and make more music for some of my own albums or make some music for some films or some games, sort of expand out. Um and hopefully that little that'll work out, but um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's been a it's been a really nice run with trailers, and I really hope for more. I really I for, actually, you know what? So. I think I just um, and I, I'm not this. It's it's a little weird because right when you talked about that, I got an email that I had a, a little placement in something, and I can't say what it is, but that was oh, um, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> don't ruin your career over this little podcast. No, no, but... <laughs> no. Well, I hate doing it because it, it seems like I'm bragging. I don't mean to brag at all, but it's like um, that was really interesting. So happy about that. But ah, it's but the it's, luck of the stars. Yeah, <laughs> it seems like that. But no, it's um, it's been a really, 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 very. It's just been a nice experience. Um, writing for writing for trailers for sure. So I actually have another question with trailer writing because we all know like how residuals, which are the new way you call royalties work in like giant film scores, like people get stuff. Is that the same way how trailers operate or is it just like a set price and you get to use your work? Oh no, it's totally negotiated. Uh, it totally depends on the budget of the film itself. So yeah, it also depends on the relationship of the publisher with the, um, with the, with the marketing department mm -hmm. of the film. Um, for instance, I've known publishers that have really helped out marketing departments by getting certain music that would be more expensive to get otherwise, like 10 times more expensive to get otherwise. And so um, so these, these, these departments trush, trust the publishers a lot more, and so the publishers are able to ask for higher fees. Um, that's just a, it's a relationship thing. Completely. As is everything. It's a networking world, people. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, everything, man. Everything. I've been saying that the whole time we've been recording episodes, but also because everyone I bring on is somehow through my network. I Everyone I know, all these cool people, because I just network. Yeah. Take the I mean, life isn't, advice. <laughs> isn't that a little bit evolutionary, though? I mean, we're just, we're people, we're tribal people, man. And whoever we talk to around us, that's going to be our life. If you, you, you notice that a lot of the people who you tend to gravitate towards are just are people who are just friendly. You know, it's like, Sure, like you might have a big name, but who cares if you're an asshole? <laughs> exactly. Okay. We've seen plenty of people tumble from Hollywood <laughs> since we've yeah. hit adult age. And I don't know. Oh, yeah, that's a great point. Oh, man, that's crazy. We won't yeah. name names, but yeah, we know it happened. <laughs> yeah. And it was very public, so it's not like an industry secret. People, I'm not in the industry. Like, I'm not even on the West Coast. Speaking of which, that's my next question, too. So you were talking about how you were composing in oh, high school. I actually wanted to bring up that one of those guys, one of those creepy pervs, actually, his company took me 
It took two, it took, no, it was like one and a half years to pay me for something. I mean, what? Yeah, well, that's the other problem. And I, I don't I don't want to expose anything, but with the that's probably the one one downside to the trailer music industry is just the wait times for how long it takes for the for the department to pay out. Um and I, I don't want to get specific because I don't know the specifics. I oh don't yeah. Cause rumors. <laughs> yeah, but, no, no. Um, like at these but it you're is, good. Yeah, but it is a it is an issue. But the longest I ever had to wait was one and a half years, and that was for that guy that guy we're, we're all thinking about who got hmm. exposed in hollywood so yeah he was so, an asshole in multiple ways yeah uh, <laughs> and it came out but so you said you were composing for things in high school and everything right uh just because i actually don't know this either where did you go to high school aroundish like are you la native yeah i mean I, I grew up in redondo beach in um yeah just just like 30 minutes outside of downtown Los Angeles and uh, oh. not in, traffic, in traffic, maybe three hours. But, um, <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it's, I've always been super close to the, to the water, not, not super, super close, but close enough. And, um, and I don't know, that's just been my home. Um, I don't know what to say about it, but yeah, I've, I've always just grown up around Los Angeles. And uh, so I had the opportunity of meeting a lot of different people and um and yeah it's it's a really 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 nice city um, i feel like my vocabulary on the show has been quite limited to really really very very and super super but um but i'm happy to say that it's a it's a really very super great place to be oh it's all good because i've been i actually said this i think like two episodes ago i'm not an eloquent person but you understand what i'm saying no, you know what? I just I drink an espresso frappuccino, and my mind is just blowing up. It's just insane. But yeah, let the yeah, creativity so flow. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> the flow. Uh, yeah, I would say that Los Angeles is a great city for someone to visit. Um, I live there. I was born and raised there, so I feel more comfortable living there. But man, it's I can't. Sometimes I can't imagine like people moving there and just living there. And some people can't take it. Some people move back to where they're from, um, which is fine. <laughs> like it's totally fine to do that. Oh, I'll but be if, honest. I visited LA once and I was like, oh, this is not my speed. Yeah. Well, you were in downtown probably, right? I was downtown and all over like my cousin. Yeah. So I'm from New York. And so I was coming to see my cousin that lives in Santa Monica. Yeah. yeah. I think it's Santa Monica. I actually don't know. She's lived all over LA and she's lived there for 30 years. Yeah, it's LA. Yeah. And so I got off the plane and I, <laughs> the people on the air flight like made fun of me because I literally just opened Snapchat because that was the thing back then, Snapchat. And I just like started recording myself and I was like, I hop off the plane. I jumped off the plane. I just started singing throughout the airport. And you just see the stewardesses like just dying behind me thinking it was like <laughs> the stupidest thing ever. But yeah. I was like, we have to take a taxi because I was, oh, everyone knows Brad from the last episode. I was with Brad. And Brad was rolling his eyes because Brad's like, okay, let's get an Uber. It's like, no, it has to be a taxi because you take a taxi in the song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perfect. But yeah, so, but as I was in LA, I was like, where are all the people? And my cousin's like, it's not New York, Danny. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and she's like, it's half the population and three times the size. Yeah, it's spread out. I was like, ugh. <laughs> you know, I think I might like it better if I go back and go to the beach. I didn't go to the beach while I was there. Oh, of course. Well, the beaches are great. 
And that's great. But it's cold water, man. We have cold water. It's just, oh. um, yeah, I mean, if you want warm water, you just come down here to Mexico. It's super nice and warm. But um, yeah, I think, uh, I think I, I'm still trying to figure out Los Angeles because it, it seems like a very, as a city, it's a city. And there's, no, there's nothing weird about it as a city. It's just a giant cultural hub where many people come to work. Um, yep. But as far as industry goes, things get way more. It's a, it's a combination of hopeful, inspiring, but also there's a side to it that can be extremely depressing. Um, and I, I'm not trying to talk too negative about it, but um, I do find that a lot of composers end up climbing and climbing and climbing their way up through this this um, veil of inspiration, hopefully not a veil, uh, but usually a veil of inspiration, and then end up just drugging themselves out and, and working to death. I mean, working insane hours, either for themselves or some other composer, it doesn't matter. And um, and it's a, it's a very interesting question. It's like, are you willing to put your health on the line? Do you love this enough? Do you love this more than yourself? And, um, and, you know, we're, we're all low self-esteem composers. So of course, of course we do. Uh, we love music more than ourselves, but, um, at a certain point, it just becomes a, an interesting question. And, and it's interesting that Los Angeles has been, um, sort of in, in uh, the same association. It's been associated with, um, the industry itself, this sort of brut brutalist, um, unforgiving, sort of sweatshop of people working and working hours on end, hours on end. And um, I mean, you, you even have top composers, you know, snorting cocaine, just doing crazy stuff, cheating on their wives, like it was just insane. And, and just, but then writing great music all the time. Um, so it's, it's this, it's a really interesting question. Um, is it worth that? Is it worth that life? And what I've noticed is that there are some composers who have managed to avoid this, who have managed to just have a great work-life balance. And they're not in Los Angeles, man. None of them are in Los Angeles. Uh, they're all just a little bit outside. There's one in, there's, there's some in Agora Hills. Um, there's some around the world. There's some in Japan, doesn't matter. But they're, um, they're, they've all kind of figured it out. And I feel like when you come to LA, you sort of, it's not bad. It's just sort of like you you come to pay your hours as a as a work person in order to get whatever you gain from that. So it could be connections, whatever it is. And then from there, you should probably go to the next chapter of your life. Um, but some people choose to stay in that and work and work and work and work themselves up into the industry from the inside up. And um, and I don't know. I've it, it can be tough, man. It can be really tough. At the same time, it can be really amazing. So it depends. But I just feel like LA, there, there's a lot of places where you can make it happen. And LA is not the only place. And I was just born in LA. So I got very lucky, pretty much. Yeah. And that's the same way I feel because LA and New York might be like rival cities in America. But I've seen that story time and time again. <laughs> Yeah, like yeah, no, people exactly. moved to New York, and also now I live by DC. And let me tell you how many wannabe politicians come here. 
Oh man, <laughs> I never thought about that. Yeah, so DC might have this politician industry, huh? Yeah, and we super, all know super. politicians just as shady as everything else. So sure. So well, yeah, it's sad. a very interesting sociology. Is fascinating people. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, just I mean, just coming here to Mexico and seeing the difference of cultures and um. No, but as you were saying that, all I was thinking was like Zach Efron recently said on like Zach Efron's World or whatever it was on Netflix, that documentary. He was saying, he's like, I got to get out of LA. I've lived here for so yeah. long, like 12 years. It's time for me to move out of the city. It traps Come you. To like, yeah. And I yeah. was like, oh, really? Huh, I don't know. I'm a very like urban liking person. Yet I also live in the suburbs and I'm happy. But I don't know. It's just such well, interesting dynamics is, that's the thing is that la is rarely urban it doesn't have a it's only urban if you're downtown and that's the place where you can you know you can walk outside your office and get a coffee and get a taxi and just do all the normal city stuff but that's about you know that's like what five six acres it's just everything outside of it is like one giant suburb so really la life is you wake up you're if you're Zac Efron, you live in your rich ass house or whatever. <laughs> you, you have your driver. I'm not sure how it works actually. It's Zac Efron's driver. You're sitting in the back of your limo. You're super drugged from whatever party you were at in that last weekend. You're dealing with this traffic. It takes four hours to get to the latest shooting of whatever whatever bullshit Ugh. movie you're doing. So it's like this loop of, uh, and then you end up not liking your work. And I think that's the point where people decide to move is that. Like, okay, this is, I, I want to do music because I like doing music. I don't want to do music because someone wants me to do it. So that's, that's dumb. Um, at the same time, you can't, you can't really encourage the total narcissism on that because you do have to lay down, uh, your, you have to pay your dues for sure um, in the industry. But hey, man, for, as far as Zach goes, he, he paid his dues, man. He deserves a little time off or at least time making movies not in Los Angeles. Um, and just living his happy life like that documentary yeah. series it was fascinating watching him go around the world living his like holistic views and yeah well i mean that's that's kind of what i learned coming down here to mexico actually um that's been a very surreal experience is that when you grow up in los angeles um a lot of the a lot of the energy around los angeles and i don't mean people born in los angeles but people who meet up and go to parties in los angeles it all seems very status-based. When you are born in a city, it is completely different. Of course. Well, you're a normal person, you know. It's like, <laughs> I mean, people people who want to move to L.A. have a certain idea in their mind already. People born in L.A. are just people born, you know. It's like whatever. But, um, and, you know, they can be crazy in other cities. <laughs> it's like we're not, we're not uh, innocent of it. But, I mean, I just mean that in, in Los Angeles, it's a very, very high um they seem very keen on seeking people who are either have a certain look, even if it's not for a, a visual job or it's, it's very, very, very status-based. Um, I could actually speak upon that. So when I first came to LA, I went to the hotel and I went to like the bar restaurant, like down below it. Right. Yeah. And so we're sitting down and this waitress comes over and she comes over and she's like all happy something. And she reads her, the specials beautifully. And I was like, I don't know. It was one of those times where just word vomit comes out. And I was like, oh my God, you're an actor. Yeah. <laughs> <There's> like <laughs> like there, that was such pretty line reading. Like that was excellent. Plus she was like really pretty. 
And then I think I insulted her a little, but I was like, oh, whoops, I guess it's like not like kosher here to say that. But then I like just telling the hostess like that story. And she's like, so she, the hostess was like, I moved here from New York six months ago. I had to submit a headshot to be the hostess at this hotel bar. Wow. And she was like, you know, that would never have flown to New York. I was like, no, it wouldn't have. Like, do you know how fast of a lawsuit that is? Yeah, I, I it's funny because I actually, I lived in New York a bit when I was five. And, oh. um, and my, my, my dad is a, a stage manager on Broadway. And, oh. and so it's, um, we were in, uh, well, not anymore now because of the Corona, but hopefully getting back into it. But we were in um, Edgewater, New Jersey, you know the place? I do. Yeah. Um, so, so we kind of were back and forth after I was not, not when I was five, but later after that, we were back and forth. Um, the whole point of me telling this is because, uh, yeah, definitely that would not fly in New York for sure. Yeah. I don't know what's going on with, um, yeah, it's, it's very status-based, but, but anyway, um, I found that Mexico, at least in my experience is a lot more character-based. So, um, it just depends on how good of a person you are, essentially, and, and you you get respect um, and you give respect. And um, but isn't that also most places not America? Yeah, I mean, yeah, and that's the thing is that we have this double-edged sword of being able to leave the ideology of community, um, especially in California. I've noticed, like, if you go to some other states, there's a little more community sense. Um, but especially in places like Los Angeles, it's like, there's no common ground, man. We are all fighting different causes. We're all from different areas and we've all decided that we're all from different areas. It's like a city that just wants to be individual. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and it, that just, it, it doesn't work. That kind of culture can't work in certain countries. Um, but it manages to work in the U S and so, um, so some people like that. Some people move to the country because of that. And uh, and I don't know. I, I found it. I, I love L.A., but that's just a little factor that definitely it makes you think for sure. Work-life balance, people. Just figure out a way. Read those self-help books and try to find yeah, your happiness. I mean, L.A., it's all work. Even the life balance part is just more part of work. They make it like work. They're like, you have to, dr- you have to drink this kale drink every 6 a.m., like every day of the week, it's like it becomes a schedule routine. It's like, oh my god, people, just chill. Just like Skincare wait. routines, like, oh, yeah, seems so it's so tiring. Yeah, no, exactly, man. Um, so that is also like, I don't know. First of all, I didn't know your dad was a stagehand on Broadway. That's fascinating. Or a stage you, manager, man. you said, right? A stage manager, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Are you allowed to say what shows he worked for? Oh, sure. I mean, he's done. Um, so he just got done with, oh man, it was the a Christmas Carol on Broadway and London, and he did the Matilda on Broadway. He did and, Matilda. Yeah, and um, so yeah, he worked with. I got to meet Tim Minchin, so it was fun. Um, it's actually something I don't really talk about. This is like one of the first times I really dive, delved into that sort of musical theater upbringing. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's what he does, and. Um, my my mother's uh she was a general manager for for some broadway productions um but yeah um oh my god that's super cool yeah yeah i just i don't it's it's part of growing up so i don't again i don't talk about it um but it's it's super cool and i'm really grateful to have the opportunity to go and see these different 
productions and also to be in the theaters. Um, and you know, I was just a little kid, so it was whatever. But but now I think about it, I was like, oh damn, that that's really really cool. Exactly. So like I said, growing up in New York, like I wasn't in the theater community growing up, but like I went to the theater a bunch and I was just like, yeah, okay, this is fun. Like, you know, just another week for me. Then when I moved, I was like, oh my God, how many people around the world are just dying to see a Broadway show? Yeah, I know. Exactly. You you suddenly realize like, and, and it's like walking in Hollywood. You're like, damn, there's so many people from around the world over here just to walk on the street that I thought was totally normal. Um, and you know what? I think that's true for a lot of cities. It's just like there's the people born there who take it as normal and the people who come there. And you can get an intermixing of ideas through both. Like you can learn a lot more about your hometown that way. Um, I'm sure that you may have been more interested in maybe 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 you were a lot more optimistic or positive about New York after some friends expressed certain things, I would imagine. Uh, I was very much like, that's home. It's my life. Yeah. It's my speed. <laughs> but also, my friends and I are going there for very different reasons. They're going there like, I want to go shopping. And I'm like, why? The sales tax is so much higher. The Forever yeah, 21 down the street is the same thing. Yeah, I know. Actually, you know what? I One time I walked into a Steinway and um, I was wearing horrible shoes, just like ripped up. I looked like a homeless guy. And they were like, yeah, <laughs> what do you need here? Like, what do you, what would you like here? And I'm like, I'm looking to buy a million dollar piano. <laughs> and uh, so they just took me down. They took me, took me through all the rooms and played a beautiful piano. And uh, maybe one day I'm going to buy a piano from there <laughs> for a million dollars. Oh, look at you. <laughs> I like that you're making goals and sharing them with us. Like, oh, no, I don't know. I mean, I just want to be honest to them. That's the goal. <laughs> but I had to make the little white lie to, um, to, to just play their piano. It's beautiful. But yeah, beyond that, I would not go shopping in New York. Yeah, it's just, um, I would, I would go walking around. I would say hi to people, go to a pizzeria. That's exactly. Fun. I literally, if my friends want to go shopping, I want to go for food. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm yeah. Gonna... Well, that's... <laughs> New York's great food, man. And my friends are like, oh, well, we could stop here. No, no, no. I'll be across the town. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you later. I know where I'm going. I totally get you, man. I don't want to be in like an expensive shopping mall with like in, in a crowded city. <laughs> it's like insane. No, I could go and just do all these other like the local things, the things the locals know about. Yeah. And I'm not saying I'm like some New York City connoisseur. I lived on Long Island, like Oceanside, New York, everyone. No one knows well, where it is. In, if, when you're in a place, you have to Go for what you can only get in that place. Yeah, I was only like five miles from the border of New York City. Oh, damn. Yeah, so I was like really close. Long Beach was next to me. Everyone knows Long Beach, New York, if they're in New York, because that's the beach all the celebrities go to. Yeah. I didn't know that till like a few years ago, the celebrities go there. Oh, I didn't know that either. <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden I just saw on Instagram all these Broadway people at Long Beach. I was like, Long Beach, this is where all the Broadway goes? And it was. I started looking through like other people's photos because I was on a mission to find out. I was like, oh, I guess I was on the beach with Broadway people once upon a time. Wow. Interesting, yeah. But they're like normal everyday people. Who would ever know? Of course. Of course. But that's a tangent. Uh <laughs> yeah, no, tangents are good. I'm dude, I'm I'm really appreciating your your patience with um super I'm super, super tired today and just on a lot of coffees. Thanks for um also just going through a lot of medical stuff and um yeah, thanks for taking the time and the patience to deal with my grumpy ass right now. I don't think you're that grumpy. Awesome. At all. I think you're fascinating. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks. So I will ask this before we move on to another topic. So your parents worked in the theater industry. Were they super encouraging of you pursuing music then? Um, 
you know what i would say that my my mom was a really really cool mom i mean she just it wasn't like the mom that is like i'm gonna be your best friend or whatever i'm gonna like be cool dude she was super disciplinary but i mean at the same time she knew her shit and she knew that you shouldn't try to force someone to to go into a certain career um so it was actually quite up in the air and um and i think that's actually a little bit of privilege to if to be honest with you it's a little bit of like you know your your parents letting you be a little free with that i realized that was a big privilege um because i thought that every kid was like that i thought every kid just has to figure out what he wants to do um but no a lot of a lot of people are just forced into what they want to do um yes that is a very real thing <laughs> yeah. the other reason is honestly with you um they already were kind of confident that i was going to be at least something because when i was five years old i was obsessed with science i was obsessed with studying the human body um very very uh just into the books into the books about uh different different types of body systems digestion the brain um didn't matter i was obsessed obsessed with the human body and um later became very again obsessed with animation um and so i always had different avenues that i was going in and um and I was able to do projects without spending any money. You know, it was, it was like I could, I could get some stuff done. And so they saw that and they were probably like, oh, he, he might figure it out. Um, so I would say it's a combination. It's a combination of having, you know, just lenient parents. But also they, they weren't so lenient when it came to school. Uh, you know, I had to go to school. I had to get good grades. I had to keep things clean. I had to, you know, just be a normal person. But um, but yeah, I mean, I pretty much just messed around with different things until I just landed on music. And the, the interesting thing is that it it almost feels alien. Like the it almost feels like I should have been an animator or something. And I just like fell into music. It's quite interesting. Um, but yeah, that, that's all I have to say about that, really. That's super interesting. You recognize that too, that you could have been a million different things, but you ended up here and you're not hating life at all. Yeah. I mean, life could be better at this moment, but I think um, it's, it's, it's quite a fantastic profession. Um, but I feel like it's more language based because <coughs> I'm sorry, let me okay. try to rephrase that sentence, but it's a little bit more in like intuitional, I would say. <coughs> dying just because when i started making music um I, I learned piano at a really young age like six which is the age that most kids learn their second language mm -hmm. um, so i have this and i'm trying not to make it sound like dramatic beautiful mindy or whatever but um <laughs> i don't know i just always have this this sort of piano playing chords in my head and um I think I understand what you're saying. So if and everyone, it makes sense. Like they're like words, or they're like, and you know how some words have character characterism to them, right? When you hear them, there's a certain feeling that comes with them, almost like the word itself is a character. I get that with, um, I guess, notes, and I think a lot of composers do that too. I think actually most composers have that same process as they they see these chords and these notes, kind of like friends, <laughs> and. Um, and they know that certain chords, when they go to other chords, they create certain emotions. And yeah. so 
I used to kind of subconsciously name or or compartmentalize certain chords changes as certain emotions. Like, oh, this is a confident sounding emotion. This is a not confident sounding emotion. This change to that change. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I love listening to people talk about their philosophy and theory about their passions and work. Yeah. But I mean, oh, that's, that's pretty much, um, it is very linguistic and, um, and when I'm really tired, I remember like if I'm super, super tired and just about to fall asleep, um, suddenly music makes a lot of sense and it makes way too much sense. It is, it's, it starts to get to a level of insanity. It's like certain chords going to other chords are like, oh, wow, that's, t that's telling me a very specific message. Um, that sounds crazy when I'm awake, you know? So, um, so there's obviously some part of the brain that's trying to process these things as a language. That's why people are really productive at night sometimes. Yeah. And also, also just too subjective at night because <laughs> sometimes you can wake up in the morning and be like, oh, wow, that was shit. <laughs> there you go. So I don't know, like, wow, I'm learning so much more about you as we talk today. So this is finally great. Also, everyone, this is the first time we've verbally spoken other than through like voice messages. It's cool. Yeah, because I, I, I actually am really... Uh, pleasantly surprised by just the way you present yourself you're super super open it's really easy to talk to you um and when you're messaging it's very very straightforward so i wasn't sure what kind of person you would be <laughs> yeah it was cool some would say i'm that way too but sure yeah that's a good way to be i think yeah i don't know thanks yeah. um so when you create music did you ever expect people to be using your scores for like amvs or like even me with guard yeah i mean that's the funny thing is that i used to actually make amvs when i was a kid like when i was like 10 or 11 i used to use windows movie maker and these <laughs> uh i even got requests you know from from youtube fans they're like can you make this music video can you make a star wars queen music video it's like yeah sure i was like making all the music videos <laughs> and um and so I, I I knew that yeah I just of course of course at some point that someday someone was going to use it, um, but I was still so happy man I was so happy when it happened like even even just tiny little AMVs um, that have no views that use the music it's just it just means something really deep because I used to do that when I was so young and um, and it's just a, it just connects to a personal part of me that's it. Do you ever just stumble upon your music? By accident? Um, I remember it happening once, but it's not notable. So let's just go with a no on that. Oh, I just meant like you're on YouTube and all of a sudden you're recommended like this random AMV someone made oh, or something you know like what? that. No, you're right. No, I was watching this um a top 10 countdown list and it, it used my music in it. I was like, what? That's weird. Huh. What were they counting down? I don't know. Hopefully <laughs> top 10. <laughs> Top 10 greatest compositions, hopefully. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so how many scores would you say you've composed? Um, like as far as, you mean as far as films go? Or, or just, just like in general. Pieces of music. Yeah, compositions. Pieces of music, yeah. So I made a count when I was about, I don't know, maybe, maybe like six years ago I made a count and it was around 600, 700. Um, 
So I'm sure it's reached over a thousand by now. But honestly, um, yeah, to be super honest, there there are composers out there that have way, way more. Man, I mean, there's like some composers have about like four thousand tracks just in the industry, not with their name credited. You're not even counting all the stuff they have out there in the open, but just in the industry, in the closed industry, 4,000 or more tracks. Um, so what you're saying is, is that next time I have a show idea, but no music, send my idea to you and you'll just know a track. You might have a track. <laughs> oh, God, no, I'm not a supervisor. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is kind of like that at some point. Like some composers do make a number of tracks just to have in a folder just for like when you ask as a director, they're going to pull it out of the folder and they're going to be, okay, I got this one. And, um, and yeah, it also, you know, that doesn't matter too much. I mean, my girlfriend, she, she's been writing music for a while, but just only recently started producing her own and she's doing a really good job and she writes good melodies and she's written two tracks and that's it. And she's already on Spotify with her, with an official verified sticker. It just depends Ooh. on, yeah, it just depends on what you do with the tracks. Um, and and that's about it. Um, but some people will claim that, yeah, you have to have a lot of tracks in the industry and that it'll it'll increase your chances of getting picked up. But um, yeah, it's, it's the whole quantity versus quality argument again and again and again. Yeah, and that actually leads to another great question of mine. But so I've listened to a lot of your music over the years. And sometimes you have like vocalists and stuff. How do you find these people to collaborate with? Um, you know what? I look on. Okay, well, there was two. Let's see. There were three main vocalists I worked with. So one was Keisha Vu, who I found through. Let me see. I believe it was Christian Basque had a track, and I just loved her voice, and I, I so I had to record on some stuff. Um, and then it was Chelsea Sanchez. Now she's Chelsea Lauren, um, who was a friend of mine in high school, actually. Oh, and, that's uh, cool. Yeah. She's a really cool, cool person. And, um, so we collaborated with, with Laura and, um, and then someone else I met through a friend of my mom, uh, was a really good singer named, uh, Kendall Blake. And, um, and see, so, yeah, those have been the main three that I've worked with and then and some others as well um back and forth but um yeah again it's just whatever pops in front of your feed you know like you're you're scrolling on youtube and you're finding composers and and i'm on facebook or youtube and i see whatever pops up and it sounds really great so i'll message the the artists and see if they want to work with me and that's it it's, it's all very very simple exactly people like you hear this you shoot your shot and hope for the best and as long as you're nice no one cares yeah and as long as you're seen, I think that's that's uh, that's important. And if you're if you're really good, you can be a jerk, unfortunately. But yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, hopefully, yeah, hopefully, be nice. Absolutely. Yeah, because I don't know. People are always like asking me, like, how do you meet all these people? I'm like, I message them. Yeah, that's the, oh, that's such a thing. That's something I learned. People don't message each other, man. It's like. You just go out and you just send the initial message and it's usually okay. And if they don't respond, it's like, who cares? Just it's, The it's thing weird. I tell people, because I deal with this all the time at work with people with social anxiety and stuff. I tell them, I'm like, all right, let's think of it this way. 
you do your thing, you shoot your shot. What's the worst that can happen? They say no. Okay, well, when they tell you no, has your life changed from what it was before? Yeah. Most of the time, no. I mean, sometimes it depends because they can remember you and be like, oh, this guy is trying too hard. Um, But I've never actually met anyone like that, (laughs) especially not in the music industry. I feel like a little bit industry. People want to collaborate. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it depends on the music industry sometimes. Like, um, yeah, with with what I've heard is that like some electronic genres um, have a community that's a little more exclusive and they won't take on a lot of collaboration. But then um, some other genres are very humble. Like I, I think that trailer music is one of the most accepting genres ever. Um, and I think that's because it's so fun to write trailer music. It's become fun for people. Uh, it's become this fun, I keep on saying fun, but it, it's this epic, crazy experience you get when you're writing this music. It's not so much ego-based. Um, though you can name a couple names that would think so. But it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's definitely, it's different. It's very different than if you're writing your own guitar song that you're singing on, you're trying to get it famous. It's a very, very different world than that. Um, and so, yeah. But yeah, people, just shoot your shot. But while we're on mental health, let me drop a plug real fast. So people remember Chesco over a few episodes ago, not a few, many episodes ago, Chesco came on and talked about his podcast, The Cinephile Podcast, which is, well, Chesco is a mental health professional currently based in the D.C. area who's moving to California California soon to pursue a Ph.D. in clinical psychology in the fall, fall of 2021. Remember, people, this is pre-recorded. He loves video games, movies, and books. You can find him on Instagram at Hey, look, it's Chesco, where he posts the good eats he whips up and promotes his own podcast, which is the Cinephile Podcast, which is a show where Chesco brings on other professionals in the field of mental health to discuss the portrayal of psychological disorders or events and phenomena in film. Why did I want to bring this up today, June 8th, 2021? Because my episode dropped today. So go check out his podcast. Right now it's on like SoundCloud. But yeah, follow him on Instagram. The link will be in the bio, all that good stuff. And listen to me talk all about WandaVision, which was a really good time. Nice. And then tell yell at him to bring me on for Digimon and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, because we're the same age. Were you a Digimon or a Pokemon guy? Oh, man, it was both. But more more <laughs> Digimon, more Digimon for sure. Nice. Put uh, Digi- Digimon for the shows, Pokemon for the games. Oh. Yeah, we all know Digimon games were not the best. Yeah, well, I don't even remember. They have games. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I have to send you stuff later too. Now that I remember that. But anyways, <laughs> we're getting back to you <laughs> and your world. Yeah. So you've obviously been scoring. You built a catalog for yourself would you ever want to try to go for a grammy yeah it kind of relates back to that first question at the beginning of the podcast it was like are you willing to go the traditional route to a grammy are you willing to to go through that brutal industry if it is brutal um 
I think to answer the question just directly, I don't really give a shit what award I get. I just want to make good music. That's all I really care about. I don't care if, you know, one guy hears it and he's like, whoa, this is the meaning of life. I don't care. <laughs> um, I just I want to be able to just make music that crawls into you and grabs at your soul. Um, and I'm just hoping to be able to get get better and better at getting deeper into the into plucking the emotional strings of someone. I I love that about about music. Um, I really don't give a fuck about getting some award. Um, but it feels great for the ego, man. It's fantastic. You can say you're award-winning. You can say, oh, I got a Grammy. Hell yeah. Um, and here's the thing, man. If, you, if you've got a Grammy, you've got ins, man. You can be like, oh, I, I'm, a, I'm an award-winning person. And you're official. Like, there's nothing. You, if you're, like, homeless, you can just get a quick thousand bucks just being like, oh, I'm a Grammy award-winning composer. Can I uh, make a fucking score for your short film about a, some clarinet player? I don't know. But um, <laughs> and then you make quick thousand. It's like, it's ridiculous. However, at the same time, yeah, yeah, I, I don't really have much. Um, yeah, it's just not my goal. And I don't blame you because there's so much involved in getting into those. Like, I I don't know. So I know for Emmys and like Oscars, you have to do a four year consideration tour. Basically, I don't know if you have to do that for Grammys. I do know you have to submit stuff. And I don't even know if you could, that's another question I was wondering. I was like, can you even submit because you're basically your own person or do you have to have like this big industry submit for you? Um, and, like, you mean as far as the Oscars go? Or just like, the, oh yeah. Cause you are eligible for Oscars. Cause there's Oscar, yeah. there's music and Emmys and Oscars and all that stuff. That's right. Yeah. It's the same rules for the, the same answer for the Oscars. But yeah. Um, yeah. As far as the Oscars go, I think um, there's, what I imagine, I wish I actually knew, but what I imagine that there's an agency that either is pre-known by the film developers, the, the film company, or is um, or is seeking a film company who's made a remarkable film and they put them all into a four-year consideration campaign and they release all of the films to certain viewers at once. Um, at least that's what I imagine, but... I yeah, <laughs> I don't know either. But what you said sounds like a pretty good guesstimation imagination. We'll yeah, say. I mean, Google's my friend, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you said the Grammy is not your goal. You've already done scoring for major films and like trailers and all that. So what would be a professional goal for you? To... <sighs> Man... You know, if I'm just talking a straight direct goal, I would love to score a fantasy video game. That would be amazing. <gasps> oh my god, I would love it. Game. Yeah. Because yeah, that's, that's how I found your music. I listen to video game soundtracks on YouTube and you were just like oh, under perfect. the suggestions. What's your favorite? Uh, game or score? No, just a score, like score for a game. Uh, well, like I said, uh, Yokoshimizura over in like Kingdom Hearts and Final Fantasy 15 is like amazing. Ooh. But like I don't know. I also really love Final Fantasy 13 soundtrack and score. Oh, you know what? Uh, my friend Alex Mukala has just started making some videos, like just remaking Final Fantasy music. And he, he made enough videos to the point, and he, and he got enough traction. His videos were very good uh, to the point where he actually got Nobuo Uematsu to listen to his orchestrations. <gasps> the composer of the Final Fantasy series. It's insane. Man. Yeah, he did like up till 10, right? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Damn. Wow, look at you. You know people moving and shaking, I guess, because it's not the shakers of movies, but they're actively like on the hustle, on the grind. Well, it's just, you're just, say. you're just, it's kind of amazing when people grow up like that and they, they, they have such an evolution in such a short time. You know, there's other people, man. There's other, uh, again, like Lionel Schmidt from, from Germany. Great young composer. I mean, he started up being a, a super humble guy, um, just, you know, messaging people, saying nice things, writing his music. It became really good over the course of like five years, man. I mean, um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of evolution that you can see in people. I mean, if you look at Brian Wen, who I think I think I told the story in another podcast, but he he had his um he had his this dream of getting his trailer music into a Ready Player One, anything in Ready Player One, because that was his his favorite book. And he ended up composing a track that not only got into the official trailer of Ready Player One, but was selected by Steven Spielberg to be in the the official soundtrack for the film. So that, that was, yeah, and that was a rare time when trailer music actually transcended itself and became part of the, the, the kind of technically the score, or at least technically the soundtrack. And um, so that's a moment that should be remembered, I feel like, in the history of trailer music, for sure. Especially Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. So just, someone... seeing, just seeing all of this evolution, especially with people who are from around the world, um, it's an industry that doesn't see your face and doesn't see your name, man. So you can be from anywhere, any gender, any race, and you can write some great film, great, great uh, trailer stuff, film scores, whatever. Uh, that actually is a huge good point. Like, this is a very faceless industry. It is, yeah. I'm not going to deny. I mean, there there's probably a level of uh, homogeneity going on, but I've seen way more diversity in trailer music than I've seen anywhere else by far that makes sense <laughs> homogeny does exist everywhere yeah but um yeah there's a lot of homogeneity in film music for instance i feel like you know like we're, we're just now getting female composers except for um um except for rachel uh but but it's like still like the, this the, it needs to be more diverse man it's just too it's it's just wonder bread man <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, man, I find it, I found it to be really, really uh, diverse when it comes to trailer music. And we've had meetups from around the world um, where just a group of friends and I, just different trailer composers, uh, you know, Walid Fagali, Arn Anderson, wh whoever it may be, um, just have these yearly travels around. And uh, we go to some cheap place and uh, hang out and, um, and talk about music. And it's, it's quite... Because it's not only diversity of the of you know the, of the physicality of things, but also diversity of of the culture, diversity of the mind. I mean, I've met so many different personalities in trailer music, and it it just seems quite homogenous the the personalities in film. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about it. I'm just saying it's quite a, it's quite a difference. I realized. Yeah, and. I don't know. That's also fascinating. And I'm happy to hear that trailer music at least is kind of like picking up and like heterogeneousing itself. Yeah, uh, because I if mean, it's homogenous, like everyone's the same. Hetero is like everyone mixing yeah. it up, even though that's like happy Pride Month, everyone, by the way. But <laughs> yeah. Well, it's yeah, happy Pride Month. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's 
it's just it's quite a different it's quite quite a different feeling i would say quite a different feeling for sure the vibes are everything yeah so you've accomplished so much at such a young age what advice would you give to others trying to follow in your footsteps in this very luck well i don't know if it's luck based but in this very Oh, it's just the industry itself. I don't know how to describe it. Um, I would say, hey, you're an artist. You feel everything like four times as much as other people. So you're going to have emotional issues. You have to stop letting other people's emotions penetrate your semi-permeable barrier and get in the way of your emotions during that process of composing. That doesn't mean don't get inspired by other people or like don't think about other people. It's nothing like that. It's like, don't worry or cause get anxiety from what others are going to feel or think or are feeling and thinking in the moment. Um, that's always been the one, one thing that stops me has always been anxiety or some kind of, uh, gray emotional area. Um, but you know, if I'm sad, I can write, if I'm happy, I can write, if I'm this, I can write, I can, but if I have anxiety, man, it's impossible. And so I would say um, you have to find a way to, you don't have to know yourself, but you have to be able to um, work just, with yourself. Well, definitely work with yourself, but just, just not let others get in the way of, you need your emotions, man. You, no matter what you're feeling or what you're thinking, no matter how weird it is, you need that when you're writing. You need to be able to be weird. You need to be able to be yourself. And, um, and so I would, I would try to shut off the self-doubt thing and just do and do and do and make action. It doesn't matter. Sometimes it doesn't matter how inspired you are. Just write, even if it's shit. Just, you know how like you're putting the first pancake on the grill and it's shit? It's always shit. Like it's just... Yes. Yeah, the first pancake is always horrible. It's like all oily and you're like, Ugh. And the next pancake is great. So just make your first pancake, man. Just make your first pancake and eventually you're going to keep writing and you'll get, you'll get into it. But, um, so that's my second piece of advice. So the first piece of advice is don't let people sort of penetrate your emotional barrier. But the other thing is, um, is just to be able to write and get inspiration through pure action so that you can be quote unquote inspired at any time of the day. Um, and my third piece of advice would be to realize when it this hasn't become fun anymore and go to therapy if you know if it hasn't because it's <laughs> pretty important i mean um you you shouldn't overwork yourself if there if you're feeling that this is the right thing to do and you're like oh like hell yeah i'm going to work all night on this that's awesome i really want to do that then do it like if you feel that's fun do that because i've had nights like that and it's great it's magical but if you're if you're starting to hate your own life, um, yeah, you should you should probably get therapy or or calm yourself down or calm your career down because my last piece of advice is that there is no linear way to get to success. Uh, you're not born great. There's I don't think there's such thing as talent. It's just more interest in something and more access to certain practice in it. Um, all of those little kids playing piano have played piano forever and were forced by their parents to do that uh, for hours and hours. And um, 
it goes the same way. I mean, you, you, whatever you put into life, you're going to get back. And it doesn't matter even if, even if talent exists and you're not quote unquote talented, which I don't believe in, but even if you put hours and hours and hours into composing something, at least you would make connections. At least you would meet people. At least you'd be able to get deeper into the industry. So it really doesn't matter. Just put time into it. Um, and just know that you can become good no matter where you go or what path you take. Uh, you'll be fine. So yeah, I think all those will be my response. Yeah. Wow. I expected some like one word thing. That was excellent. Yeah, well, I've just been through shit going, getting up through um, just from, from being this amateur kid to being a less amateur person. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I've, I've just, I've dealt with a lot of emotions. I've dealt with a lot of um, internal battles, sort of being assistants to other composers and knowing how that goes. And um, yeah. And I'm going to ask this because I actually don't know this about you and you didn't mention it before. So, you do not have a higher education degree in music and everything, right? Yeah, I mean, I kind of replaced it with conservatory education. So I, I had a quite a, an intense program in San Francisco at a conservatory of classical music. And, um, and that's when I had my, I guess you could say, classical training. Um, and, you know, I, I was orchestrating and writing for live small ensembles. And, um, and I learned a lot. It was great. But beyond that, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I had some idea in my head when I was that age that, that, um, that formal education sort of is a poison and it would ruin the uniqueness of the music. And I don't think that's true now, but I, I guess I had that idea when I was that age. And, um, and so I, I kind of semi-avoided it for a bit. Um, I went to a, a college for music in San Francisco right after that, which is actually a, a university. Um, but th at that point, I got too busy writing for actual films, and I just ended up totally flunking that. Um, but the films that came out of that were, were, were great, and I actually got a lot of jobs from the people in the, in the university. Um, but... That, for, uh, like basically outside of that it's just been self-education I mean I, I was just so interested in music it was the only thing that I did for a very long time and um, you know what else is the only thing you do for a very long time school so it was pretty much just me self self-teaching myself and um, me self-teaching myself yeah yeah education comes in many forms people yeah I love your little, little quotes of wisdom after each runaround. See, and I feel like I'm being half sarcastic and snarky, so I'm glad people are taking <laughs> it in a good way because I do mean it in a good way. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, just education comes in all forms. The school of hard knocks or whatever, like that's a real thing. Not saying that's what this was case was for you, but just like you're gonna learn somehow. Yeah, it's ridiculous to think otherwise. Like you learn something, boom, you learned it. You learn it in school, maybe you learn it faster, but you still learn stuff. Um, Pull an axle, commit it to memory, and... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, yeah, you, you need school. I'm just going to say that out there. You, you do need education for the masses. That's really important. But when it comes to specialized things that people have actual passion for, I really think the passion makes up for that. And usually the, 
the most passionate person in the room might not go to school, but they're going to be the most, I would say the most tenacious in their effort to improve. And so the most uh, tenacious in their effort to work well with people, hopefully. Yeah, that makes total sense because again, you can learn anything from everything and just put it to good use people. Yeah, I mean, it depends. I mean, you can, there's also composers I know who have had great, great formal classical education and it totally changed their writing. Um, John Powell actually went away for a bit. He left, Los, so he did How to Train Your Dragon. He left Los Angeles to go see his family and do some classical training um, and study really deeply certain, certain um, passages and music, certain orchestrations. And um, then when he came back to do How to Train Your Dragon 2, um, it was such a different, more mature score. It really was, though. Yeah, it was, it was really different than the first film, but still just fantastic. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's all about passion, man. It doesn't matter. Nothing is, and that's what I have to say to my younger self. Nothing's going to ruin it if you have passion. You, you can just combine whatever you learn with your passion. If you go to school and you have passion, you're going to succeed. If you don't go to school and you have passion, you're going to succeed. It's about how you feel. It's not about uh, what building you entered and what your teacher was. Yeah, totally. Actually, that actually brings up a good question that I was supposed to ask like way before in the flow of questions. So I know you haven't done like a full movie score yet in film score or video game score, but something I've wondered, which I think you might know about is, oh no, yes, you have. You did like Sightless on Netflix, duh. Yeah, okay, I've done a couple of documentaries around there too. Um, yeah. But yeah. So, okay, great. Here's my question. When do they finally bring you in to like the whole process? Like, are they filming everything? They're like, oh, by the way, we need you to come in and do this whole thing. <laughs> no, I mean, usually it's a, we talk about it a lot before the actual, it's either during shooting. Um, it could be right after, like they have pretty much the whole thing done, but they need a composer. Um, it could be after in the sense that they just fired their composer. They need a new one at last second. Um, <laughs> But no, most of the time it's it's very preliminary, the whole process. It's like we talk about the film. Um, I get some rough cut of the film. There might be additions on the film on the rough cut later. And so I'll modify the score to that um, if I've already started writing. But before any of that happens, I'll write some concept themes. And um, I, I actually find it it's a quite a different workflow with each director based on how the process, um, I guess, accelerates as we get into the cut. But what I have noticed is that all of them, yeah, it's all preliminary. Most of them, it's, it's you know, like they're still working on the cut usually when you're talking about the score. I'm super happy to hear that actually, because, so you're in the proactive side of things, typically, we're gonna say, and, oh. Because I know the dance world, and let me tell you, some of the last people to get the word is the choreographer. <laughs> sure. So, because like I even like in marching band, I have been told by like band directors, like, "Hey, we need to change this whole song by Friday or Saturday." I'm like, "Great, it's Tuesday, thanks." And we're practice is halfway done today, so that leaves like what four hours this week to get that whole thing redone. Thanks. Oh well, yeah, I mean that's that's trailer music too. It's like, hey, can you uh, reorchestrate this entire thing with a sixty piece orchestra? Sure, yeah. Okay, we need in three hours. 
What? It's always like that. Yeah, it's always like that for a lot of for a lot of tracks. Um, That's another good question, actually. When you're orchestrating, are you actually like in the conducting room and just like watching your piece come alive with like all like what you see in behind the scenes clips? No, I wish I was that rich, man. No, I, <laughs> uh, I think that's been the whole art of it is trying to make these virtual instruments sound as real as you can. Oh. And, and so I have some instruments that are custom sampled. I've done some custom sampling projects myself, <clears throat> including, uh, you know, going into into a room with uh, cello players and them recording every single note in the cello with every single legato transition. Um, and then forming that into sort of a velocity-based matrix where you put everything in combination and have envelopes that fade out to those legato transitions between each um, each two note presses or overlaps. And so you can make, from a recording, you can make these real sounding cello, this little real sounding cello patch, basically in, in a sampler like Contact uh, or what have you. And, um, and so that's primarily what I work with is these virtual instruments that either you know, are, are commercial or custom or done by a friend or done by myself. Um, and the whole art is to just make that sound like it's real. And there's a lot of cool techniques to do that. I mean, you can, you can have a violin, a virtual violin ensemble playing a melody and play a solo violin over that and just, just take the volume of the solo violin just a little bit down so it's not standing out. And you're going to hear that, that those higher frequencies and slight scratches uh, create um, a little more realistic sound. The more realistic sound and the accents that I'm the one that has to bring the life visually. <laughs> <laughs> and when I'm doing guard work, so. Right, yeah. Don't think I don't notice those. Those go oh, yeah. a long way. <laughs> and also, I appreciate, from like a choreographer standpoint, I appreciate those little like realistic inconsistencies just like the human artistry of it all because if everything's so perfect like everything's going to sound a little robotic we know that but yeah. so all that extra like detailing that you're putting in <laughs> it helps my life so thank yeah. you yeah no problem all right so to wrap up the main question portion what's something you would like to change about the culture of the music industry uh stop kissing ass but also <laughs> Like, be nice. Just be nice because you are nice. Like, stop this favoritism. That was my problem when I was uh, much younger as a composer. Is like, certain composers were just, they, 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 they manifested through my mind a sphere of truth. And I was like, oh, okay, so only those composers, only this type of music is important. And I shouldn't try to understand any other type because I already... I'm already set, you know, I'm already, I've already got my thing for life. So I don't have to learn and have new experiences. No, man, you need way more. You need to go into genres you don't even like and try to like it. You need to understand why people like different styles of music or else you won't understand certain emotions and you're going to miss out on certain emotions in life. And that's not a good thing. So it's uh, like, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, my advice would be bring something into your musical world that's from a different world that's in my experience is is what evolves music through time is when you bring something into it from an outside place that's what makes interesting stuff happen 
Um, th that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's instrumentation. It doesn't matter if it's an interesting lyric. It doesn't matter if it's a story that's that's just really intense to hear um, or different or unique. Um, it just has to be. It has to be something that comes from that empathetic journey of experience and just listening to many different types of music, I would say. Yes. And the same thing I would say goes for all creativeness. Cause so I also dabble in writing and yeah, let me tell you, I only really like writing or reading like, you know, fantasy, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to pick up something good in a romance novel to use later on yeah. or choreography wise. I'm not a tapper. Tap dance is something I would loathe to do. But that doesn't mean that their footwork isn't super strengthening that I could use it in like every other turn that we do in the world. Yeah, no, it, it, that's exactly right. And that applies to music too. Like, would you, <clears throat> would you rather write, you know, the, the, the five, four, uh, only second inversion rule fucking <laughs> song <laughs> that your professor told you to write? Or would you rather bring in um, something else, some other element? Uh, maybe another rhythm, another rhythm from a culture that you might have grown up in, and something, just something personal. Um, and of course, I'm not, I'm not trying to talk shit about, yeah, you know, studying. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, what would you rather hear? And I think people always would rather hear um, when you've taken something from your world that you enjoy or that you uh, don't enjoy to something that, that matters a lot to you, something that that makes you feel something strong. Um, and you put that into the music. You don't have to be feeling it as you're doing that. I'm just saying something that's very important to you. The human experience, people, it sells. <laughs> yeah. that's Actually, that's pretty much it. You summarized it. You pretty much summarized the whole thing with that sentence. Yeah, the human experience sells. And um, sometimes, yeah. sometimes you're just chilling and you can write a really good song. Um, so I think it comes a lot from relaxing and I think it comes a lot from, again, just diversifying uh, what emotes you. Oh, that's such a good phrase. Diversifying what emotes you. I think so. Cause it's like, even if there's some haters, like when I, when I released a live, um, that track had a ton of just instant hate. What? And, <laughs> yeah, Cause it was like, because I was I was normally posting music from promoters in Epic Music channels, and at that time, <clears throat> um, besides some of Thomas Burgesson's pieces and some of some other composers, um, at the time Epic Music was very strictly a certain sound, certain genre, um, a certain type of you know orchestration, and it just gets, it can get very cheesy. Um, and when I when I had the uploaders put a live on. It was like, it was like, what is this? Um, is it Vocaloid stuff? Is this Japanese stuff? What is this? And um, is like, it, some people don't like the lyrics or the electronic elements. And um, but that's the thing, though, is that that's actually when you know that you might be on a good path is when you start to divide people, because equally, in, in some cases, you can make total shit and no one will like it. And I've done that many times, but sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes equally dividing people is something that, that how do I put this? Like the amount of dark energy coming off of it could be the same amount of great energy. So if, if you're kind of dividing people on something, you know that you're, 
you're going in the right direction because you're creating a niche of people who you, who will like that genre. That you're also, gonna... like, it creates conversation. Yeah. Oh yeah, it yeah, for sure. Has people thinking about you, and it just makes a it, not energy, but it makes a momentum for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it creates a conversation. And it's not necessarily no bad press, no press is bad press kind of deal, but it kind of is, but not in that genre of it. But like, it's the same thing. It's just like, people are thinking about you. People are creating the energy. And yeah. let me tell you, so Alive is the song that I found first. And I was like, oh my God, Dream Guard Show. And I was like, wait, this is six minutes long. It's really intense. <laughs> but let me tell you, the bridge where like the percussion comes back in around like four minutes and a half minutes in, like, oh, love that part. But well, you, man. every time I go to competition, someone has a comment about like, why is your song so electronic? And I'm like, uh, look, they're having fun. Go with it. Yeah. And like for me, I, I really don't care. Like if somebody hates my track, that's totally their opinion. That's awesome. I might even learn something if it's a good, hateful comment. Yeah. But, um, but that's kind of when I knew that that's when I knew that I was doing something right. Um, and sure enough, you know, instantly those haters went away and it's still my most popular song to this day. And I've tried to beat it many times and I can't. So there you go. How ahead is it from number two? Oh, way ahead. I don't even know what number two is, man. I was about to always, ask. I was like, what is number two? I think it's just, I think it's We Rule the World, um, which is from the, the If album, I believe. Yeah, I was like, that's yeah. a very different song. All the number twos are different on each platform. On Spotify, it's something different. On Amazon, something different. So so I, I don't know. But um, I'm just glad to have a number one, at least. Something. Um, and and so that's just a, it's just a fun track that I can quickly show people. I think it's the fact that, you know, I, I don't, I don't actually, when I was writing that track, I, I was not, I didn't have a conscious plan. Um, and I think it was just the fact that the intro was so instantly frantic and insane that, um, that it kind of glues you on. And that's what I've, I've realized is that, man, good intros are very important. Um, so yeah, that was a little tangent that led to injury. No, because like I told, I told you I love Alive. I always thought it was like flying, the beginning. Sure. Yeah. Like a bird's eye perspective flying above clouds. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could be anything really. Um, yeah. I. I mean, I'm I'm sick of that song. <laughs> I, I want I want to make something new. I want I want to beat beat Alive because I've heard that song so many times now. Um, but it was so fun to write. I remember that. And it, it took me about seven hours to write. And it was just in, um, I was just trying to clean my room, or clean the house or something. I was trying to, I was trying to clean something. And I, I just remember not wanting to do it. And so I was basically procrastinating writing, um, writing this track. And Yeah. So let me ask you this then. How did you come up with the concept for Almost Alive? Oh, you know, um, I was listening to a lot of albums by Maddion. I shouldn't say a lot because he has like three official, but um, or four, I think. But uh, he would put in these intros in his albums that lead up to the the main track, and I thought that was so cool. And and him and Porter Robinson and some other some other artists were my 
kind of inspiration at that point for album creation and album organization and and arrangement so it was like wouldn't it be cool to make this fun little uh thing that just comes on and can just engage people instantly that's just based on the, the most popular track in the album and then it would just lead straight into the next track that was cool yeah i would actually call it very genre different so everyone go listen to almost alive parentheses intro on youtube yeah. wherever you find your music it's on spotify i have it pulled up right now because we rule the world is number two for you but it's a good track it's a good track i wish i would have taken off the offbeat pitched up synth that sort of comes in at every um, bar two on every beat too i mean yeah I would, I would like to take that out but yeah besides that i, th I think it's a uh, it's a fun track and it leads into the album yeah i always wondered though how come i didn't like seamlessly flow through probably because um either i i didn't know what i was doing or because there was just some pause in the music or because you're not if you're skipping tracks on itunes or on sometimes in spotify it won't be as seamless as you might think yeah um, because i feel like it, even the instruments are different so it's not like a full full like the same like i think a decrescendo oh, i totally know what you're talking about yeah i remember now um i did know what i was doing thankfully yeah it was just um <laughs> it connected it just didn't connect audially it was just this sort of and um and i can just go into the song but it still connected on a melodic level so it was just a fun little addition into the album um to sort of it's like a meta track it's just sort of over the album itself yeah. another question i have for you actually about spotify and like how you're like producing music everywhere so on spotify the only albums of yours is if and voyant yeah and that's not gonna be like that for long hopefully um i've been working on some music and um and i'm hoping to get that out hoping to release it i mean the the amount of stuff that i've been through just just working on these tracks is working on this next album is freaking insane man and, i'm excited because uh, you have been working on it for like three years i'm terrified it was taken three years just to get out these tracks but the thing is that um there's been a lot of pain just making this music and, I, and for some reason i feel like that pain sort of transferred in also the inspiration that went around these past years just this this whole experience um really crazy um so i'm i'm really hoping to get music out soon um but i really want to do it right and there's an anxiety that comes from being able to market your music right yeah because you can because music is like i don't even i sometimes don't want to listen to other people's music you know it's like you have to click a link then you have to like be there for two minutes it's not a compared to like photography you know it's not the most instantly engaging thing um so you have to make it engage in a certain way and i'm hoping to be able to do that Nah, yeah the best way i think these days to do like music is if it's just on a playlist someone's making and it's like oh what's yeah. this it just yes but... because it pops up exactly mm -hmm. it, and it then when you, you. <laughs> and when it clicks in you're like oh that's what this is right. what is this i want to listen to more yeah exactly exactly and that's usually how it happens is people just it's on a YouTube playlist, Spotify playlist. Are we ever going to get your backlog too? Like clockwork and all that? Oh man, no, that should that should be um is that not on Spotify? No, literally. It's just voyant oh, and yeah. if. Oh damn, yeah. All right. Yeah, so that's going to be on Amazon. 
that's my other goal for this year. Just get everything organized with that. My girlfriend's been really helpful um, uh, organizing all the different platforms that I've been on. And um, yeah, hopefully that, that's that's going to be a step up with just actually getting more music on Spotify itself. But no, you can find Clockwater on um, on Amazon and on iTunes, I believe. But I only have Spotify. Only have Spotify. <laughs> yeah, okay. I got to get that on there then. Yeah, because I miss it. And Windspeak is what, what I use for the guard show. So I was like, I kind of want to listen to Windspeak again. But You're right. Yeah, you're right. That's a good idea. Oh, and Final Light. Final Light is a song I would love to do, but it's 30 seconds too short. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, that was that was also a pretty fun track. It was Kelly Ryu, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, last time I talked to her, she became, she went into musicology, I believe. So she's, I don't know if she's still actually playing violin or not, but. At the time, she was really great, and uh, that was a that was a really cool track to do. Oh wait, I did do Final Light. Oh, did you? Yeah, I, I said you that. It's with the. Oh, you I did. did both. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. Thanks for using that. No problem. Thank you for writing it. Yeah. Now get it on Spotify so I could listen to it again. You're damn right. <laughs> yeah, you're damn right. That's actually pretty. I think I overlooked it because it's it's just old, and I, I really don't like how it was mixed and i just it's too late i felt it was too late to upload it now because it was just okay well this is a fan telling you to do it and if you have yeah. to do pull a taylor swift and redo it <laughs> <laughs> no i won't redo Clockwater. water a lot of effort went into that and it was fun yeah yeah i mean i'll put it up there we'll see what happens thank you okay so are you ready for the rapid fire question portion yeah let's bring it on man oh another quick thing before we go into that you said you're in the history too. Yeah, I'm a little bit. I mean, that's a little hobby of mine, a little history nerd. I'm not an expert. But... No, but how do you feel about the bardcore movement happening? Oh man, so now I'm completely lost. Oh, okay, cool. Look yeah. at me, people teaching things. Yeah. <laughs> bardcore is like the genre that's been going around on YouTube lately, where it's like they take like pop top 40s, like pop music, and like making it medieval sounding. Medieval sounding. In the top forties, yeah. yeah. Like if you just search bardcore, a bunch of things will I come think, up. No, like, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So they use like baroque style instruments or like um, yes, like old clarinets. Brown mm-hmm. <laughs> the bad romance one is a great one, but yeah, I mean that's that's pretty dope. I think um, I don't know, man. I think as long as it's engaging and it's cool, it's cool. If it if they made a boring one, then it sucks. If they made a cool one, then it's cool. And that's the thing. I. I Genres are, are a very bad way to categorize music, I think. And I mean, they're great because language is limited to a certain logic and genres work really well with the limited logic of language. Um, as weird of an answer that, as that sounds. But it's, it's actually that um, good innovative music is always a little tiny bit outside of its own genre. You know, it's like... yeah there's some tracks that you just can't really classify and it's just music. And it's just a really good melody. Um, you know, Sufjan Stevens, some tracks of his, it's just almost acapella with a few chords. Like, how do you categorize that? You can't. And acapella with a few chords. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's like, you also don't really want that in your head when you're writing, unless you're trying to have fun and just have like a jam session. Like, Oh yeah, let's make, Let's make cumbias. You know, that's a that's a Colombian style of music um, with a certain beat. 
and uh, you can you can totally be traditional and be like okay that's a cumbia that's what we need for to make a cumbia that's what we need as far as instrumentation as far as the rhythm uh, to make a traditional cumbia or whatever um, so you can have this sort of sort of how to put it more recreational approach to making music but um, but as far as making music goes you shouldn't have that in your head you shouldn't have the idea that uh, that music is so genre because you might miss out on actually telling your whole story because uh, you get too distracted and making it a certain way. And um, if the voice in your head is saying, no, man, that's not insert genre here. Um, probably not a good idea to have that voice in your head. So. That's when you become a meme. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, we all see those gamer memes. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right, so you ready for the questions? Yeah, let's do it. All right, here we go. What are your chosen coping skills? Um, <laughs> oh man, probably just bad food, like tacos, um, heavy food. That's my oh, coping. I would love a taco. Yeah, <laughs> they're good. They're good. especially here, man. Tacos are great here. Um, yeah, for sure. Pick a side, Lancaster or York. Uh, Lancaster, because it sounds cool. Where do you stand on the Oxford comma? Oh, of course, Oxford comma. It makes no sense to use the the two commas to list three things. It, it should be an Oxford comma, so then you can delete the comma if you want to categorize those two things with a subtle nuance of the final two being its own kind of category. But we can't do that because we have this argument of where to put the comma. Put it, it's, it's a comma per thing. It's easy. <laughs> <laughs> if I told you to bring a pie to pie day, what kind of pie would you bring? Um, one that tastes good. Hopefully. <laughs> I don't think anyone gives a shit about the clever little... No, at the end of the day, no one, gives, no one cares about like what clever thing you do with the math there. I think what, what they want is just to eat really good pie. Like, damn, pie day. I don't think they're there for the math. <laughs> true what is an innocent phrase that you have mistakenly or subconsciously weaponized can you ask that again that was a really interesting question what is an innocent phrase that you have mistakenly or subconsciously weaponized um hmm i always thought nice guys finish last I always thought that meant that during intimate sessions, they would finish last because they were nice. Aww. I didn't realize it was they they get accomplishments last of everyone. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm glad you had an answer for that, though. Yeah. What's a trend that went too far? Oh, man. I mean, there's a lot. The, the Tide Pod Challenge. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Um, I think any any trend where you're harming your own body, it's not good. If you could rule an established country or territory in this world, where and why? Um, I don't know, man. I don't want to rule any place. Uh, maybe I would just... I don't know. Maybe I'd rule... Kazakhstan. 
because of just the, the amount of diversity in, in the nature and just how much it has, but it's also inland. So you kind of have your own, you know, you have a little bit of control, but also you have sort of influence from other places. So I don't know. I, that's a really, really good question. And that's, that's just for some reason I have to pick Kazakhstan. All right. Very weird that that came out of my head, but yeah. If you were the pageant contestant or large platform holder, what would be your philanthropy or cause? Oh man. I mean, does it have to do with the, the, the event itself? It's just like when they ask you, and what are you here for competing for today? Right. <laughs> um, I, I want to make sure that every composer has access to a quiet place. That's, I think that's my humanitarian goal. I want to make sure that everyone who does music has an access to some place that is low noise and they have the ability to record um, and be in and, and like be in for weeks on end. And that'd be cool. That's what I'm that's what I'm modeling for in the fashion pageantry. <laughs> what avatar nation would you come from? Air, because you can just use air to push any other fucking element. You can be all the benders at once, like fake, you know, like if you're if you're air, you can move the water and you can pretend to be a waterbender. It's like no wonder they killed off all the airbenders. because They're overpowered, man. Like we got to get rid of these guys fast, dude. I mean, I would totally be air. That was a very instant and known answer within your heart. <laughs> <laughs> You've thought about this. Yeah, <laughs> I did. Yeah, I do have an answer for that. Who would play you in a documentary or movie about your life? I don't know, man. Carrot Top? I have no idea. I don't I don't know any famous uh I don't know any famous redheads who could I would have said Ed Sheeran before Carrot Top. Ed Sheeran, yeah, he's a little bit fat though. He's a little too fat. Yeah, people could lose weight. Thank you. So lose weight for the role, yeah. Yeah, actually, if you get the um the pop doll of Ed Sheeran, it's it looks identical to me. Oh. Bizarre. And people people will come up to me and say, like, hey, you're Ed Sheeran, right? And I'll just have to give the disappointing news. Um, but yeah. Or I can not even British and go with it. Well, they they can't see that on the street. Uh okay. Yeah. All right. And last one. What's your ideal five minutes of fame? Um, I think playing piano in front of an audience would be cool for five minutes. Yeah, nice. Yeah, just like doing whatever. I think like whatever puts you in the zone and just makes you feel like you're just in that zone. Kind of like from that movie Soul. Um, sort of puts you in the zone. But also there's an audience who's like kind of cheering you on. I think that would be my... I don't know, my like fame fantasy if I ever had one. Nice. Well, look at you. So I don't know, music oriented. No, no. Your passions come through and it's really nice to see. Yeah, I mean, I like music and I like learning. And I always I, I, I know that this this world is very small in some areas and very, very big in some others. Um so it's worth it to be into music, but also to mentally venture out of it a bit just to get a bigger perspective on things. Cause we're, we also have our own human experience that we can't neglect. Um, even, even if it means to sacrifice your income or to sacrifice uh, something that's giving you stability, uh, stability can be a drug and um, it can 
it, it can it can take you away from certain experiences. But at the same time, stability is fantastic for creativity. Um, so yeah, it, I think again, it's just me saying that I'm still learning of life, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I like the honesty. I'm talking about. All right, so if people wanted to like reach out to you and figure out like more about you, where could they find you? Um, great question. I mean, my YouTube is probably where I interact with most people who are fans themselves or just people who follow the music themselves who aren't, who I don't know, know closely. Um, but if you want to hit me up on Facebook or whatever, I'm down. If you want to chat about music. Uh, yeah, totally fine. I don't even know if I follow your YouTube, honestly. I think I just yeah, went I mean, straight to your Facebook and I confront. follow it. Follow it. I will after this and I'll link it in the description <laughs> below for everyone. Nah, I mean, um, no, it's, it's kind of both places and I, I'm in the process of growing the YouTube at the moment. So, um, yeah, hopefully it'll be bigger. How many subscribers do you have? I don't know. I think, um, I think 6,000 now and I haven't been releasing too much, so it's not too bad, but uh, hopefully I'll start releasing stuff soon. Yeah. And then all you got to do is get a few people to promote it and bada bing, bada boom. Hopefully. Again, I, I, I use hopefully a lot because you never know. Um, but I think I'm just excited to finally get back into the, the groove of things. Um, I am so excited for you to get back into the groove too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. I want this new music. You've told yeah. me pieces about it, like in the past, like a few years. And I'm just like, okay, great. <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah, yeah. And I've been ready for a long time and it's, it's still coming along very slowly, but um, have about three or four tracks that are almost complete now. Uh, so hoping to at least, if not an album, get an EP out there. Uh, just something new. Just got to get something new out there. But yeah. Oh, okay. Hold on, everyone. Before the world comes after me <laughs> about things. Clockwater and Children of the Wind are on Spotify, but I forget you switched your moniker from Philip Lober. That's Gil. right. That's why I got a little confused there because it should have been on there um yeah yeah so i guess at a certain time i switched from being philip lober to phil lober that uh, looks like 2015 um uh <laughs> yeah yeah so you can find Clockwater and um and some others if you just go under philip lober so yeah world go listen to phil's entire record history because i don't even know if you want to hear my direct trailer orchestral epic music in the industry itself, you can listen to Ghostwriter's Black Space album because I wrote all the music for that album. And um, But I'm not credited as Phil Lober there. It's just Ghostwriter's, the publisher's album. Uh, and check that out. So yeah, there's basically that's all my work on Spotify. Nice. Okay, wow. I've learned yeah. so much more about you than I thought I would today. Yeah, hopefully good things. Oh, look at this. I just noticed we've officially hit like two hours. You will officially be the longest interview. This is exciting. Oh, man. Yeah, I guess I drag on with my speech. But yeah, I mean, hopefully, um, hopefully it turns out to be a, a nice little podcast. And uh, Oh, it'll be amazing. We didn't even flub once that I have to edit anything. So great. Woo, go us. Great. But is there anything you want to say to the world before we wrap up? Um, well, I'm currently going through a lot of medical shit. And uh, it's hard to, to talk. Uh, this is my first podcast in a, 
like in a long time. I think my last one was a year ago. And um, I'm going through a really surreal journey of, of having grown up writing music in one room all my life to venturing out and learning more about people um, and, and learning a lot more about the internal emotional world. Um, I think the one thing I would tell people is that the thing that you're going to be most stupid in is the thing that you think you know the most of. And that's what I've learned like a lot from, from these past years. Um, never, ever think that you know something. And if you do, I mean, you can pretend to know something and have the feeling and that's great. Like if you want to show off to people, if you want to put your stuff on the table, it's whatever. But it's like when you're actually being serious with yourself, you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, trick yourself into thinking that you know anything there's always someone better than you is the mean way to say that and there's, there's always more knowledge to to explore like even even if it's not a skill like for instance a lot of people don't go to mexico because they think they know mexico they think they know the crime they think they know the culture um but it's it's such a diverse culture it, it can never be encapsulated it's there's too big of a country so it's like just try not to know something. <laughs> try, try to not know things as much as possible and keep on learning and learning and ask questions to yourself. It's okay. You don't have to feel embarrassed asking questions all the time, but at least ask them to yourself about anything. And questions make the world bigger. Um, yeah. Awesome. So again, thank you for breaking your podcast and like, hiatus to come onto this show no i mean i was super engaged with the questionnaire um and yeah it's a it's a really nice podcast so yeah man thank you for inviting me no problem so world thank you for listening in today uh feel free to reach out and talk to us uh you can find me at the shape of a star podcast on instagram or email at the shape of a star podcast at gmail.com and I'll link all the things we talked about today, the Cinephile podcast. I'll link Phil's YouTube page and satellites. Catch us next orbit. Bye.